Hello and welcome to the YGVM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I am Mara, a second year PhD student in microbiology. And I'm Samantha, a first year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. So I know we haven't seen you guys in a long time, almost a month I think, right? Too long, too long. Yeah. Well, we are back and we're going to continue releasing our podcast every week, just as planned. I know we have missed a lot of stuff, and we have to go through all of the stories that came out while we were gone for the break, and we just had to choose four of them to d- discuss with you today. Yeah, honestly, it was kind of hard choosing between all of the studies that have accumulated since our last podcast, but unfortunately, we had to choose only four, so let's get started. Mara, what do you have for us today? So the first study that picked my interest was published recently in Journal of Infectious Disease, and it comes from research group of Ben Mamoun. It focuses on development of antimicrobial therapies against Babesia. Cool. So what is Babesia and how do people get exposed to it? So Babesia is a parasite that is normally transmitted by ticks, kind of like Lyme disease. Um, and sometimes ticks can actually be infected by both Babesia and Lyme borreliosis, and then people can have co-infection. But overall, parasites grow and multiply mostly in the blood cells, and symptoms of babesiosis can include mostly flu-like symptoms like fever, chills, fatigue, and in some instances they can be life-threatening. The problem is that the incidence of this disease is growing worldwide, and CDC also reports that in regions like New England, it's also growing over the past few years. Okay, so what have been some contemporary treatment methods, and why are they not enough? Well, there have been some drugs approved to be used against pubesiosis, such as atovaquone and azithromycin, or clindamycin and quinine. Um, And those, again, are used in combination. So you take two drugs at the same time. The problem has largely been that Babesia parasite develops resistance against those drugs. So a lot of Babesiosis that is currently occurring in Connecticut, for example, a lot of it is resistant. So current therapies are just not efficient enough. So what is the essence of this discovery that they made in the study? Well, their lab tried to look at other drugs that can potentially be used against babesiosis. The first drug they looked at is tefenoquine, um, which is currently an FDA-approved antimalarial and is actually used against malaria. Um, I assume that they tried using it because malaria is also a parasite, which at this stage where it's in human it resides in blood cells, kind of like babesia. Um, I'm not a parasitologist, so probably somebody's going to come after me for that. But I can imagine or they thought it would be efficient as well because there's some roots that can target. And they were able to see that Tifenoquine was, in fact, effective in blocking the growth of the parasite. First of all, they tried it just in a lab, in vitro, and then they shifted to mouse experiments using several species of Babesia. Uh, and they saw that the drug, in fact, was inhibiting growth and infection pretty well. However, in immunodeficient mice, it wasn't 100% efficiency, so they tried a combination therapy. And the second drug they were using is the one that I mentioned before, which is atovaquone. Uh, as I said, a currently recommended biziotic drug. Um, and they saw that in combination therapy, they saw complete clearance of the infection, including the resistance strains of BCF. Okay, so why is combination therapy better than our current methods? 
Well, first of all, of course, it cleared the parasite better. Um, but they also saw another interesting result from it. It seems like it can induce protective immunity. Um, I suspect that it works in the way that if an organism is able to see the parasite but still beat it, it will have time to develop um, antibodies against it to be exposed to antigen for a long enough time to develop some immunity. Um, so the drugs allow to sort of vaccinate the individuals at the same time. And of course, a lot more research is needed in that direction, but I think it's very promising and I hope we do have some form of vaccine against obesity in the future. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I I think it's really cool how you put it that it's a pseudo-vaccination because I think that that really helps illustrate it for people who aren't acquainted with this type of um, like study and technology, just really understand how it works a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that more and more in basic science and research in general, we're looking on, at a vaccination, not just in the form that we've been used to it over decades, which is, oh yeah, we'll inject the antigen and the antibodies will be formed. But we kind of worked with the organism to allow it to develop it in different methods. Yeah, absolutely. It's all really fascinating. Thank you for sharing. And what's your article choice, Samantha? Well, I'm going to be starting off with talking about personalized medicine using AI. So a team of researchers at Yale led a study to investigate the promise of machine learning models in personalized medicine to help with decision making and determining the best treatment plan for patients. Wonderful. So why do you think it's important to investigate the potential of artificial intelligence in medicine? So as we know, it's important because for the same medical condition, there can be several possible treatment plans and medications available as options, but it can initially be hard to determine which option is right for that specific patient. This is where the appeal of personalized medicine comes in and where AI has the potential to be vital as a predictive tool. Wonderful. Um, And tell me, how exactly was the study conducted? So the team tested a machine learning model across data for several independent clinical trials of antipsychotic medication for schizophrenia. And they sourced this data from the Yale Open Data Access Project. Um, And within the trial, or within the study, uh, 1,962 total patients across age groups from preteen to elderly were studied from randomized control trials at sites in North America, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And the machine learning model was evaluated by seeing whether the clinically significant symptom improvements could be achieved. And when observing the performance of the model for individual data sets, the team found that the AI model was able to predict the best treatment plan with near-perfect accuracy. However, when the model was applied on different data sets, it did not work as effectively. I see. So what do they think were the problems here? So basically what this means is that the model was extremely effective in, effective in predicting the best outcome for the people within the data set it was modeled after. However, when it was applied to different clinical trials and pools of patients, it was less precise in determining the best, best path forward. So basically the model was so used to the specific patients that were in the trials that it was um, studying. And so it was just very sensitive to their specific um, different factors. And so when the patients were different and in different trials, it was less effective in taking into account those different factors and deciding what the best treatment plan was. I see. 
So is it possible that it could be improved if the data set was bigger, perhaps? Or maybe it's just the individual differences are too large? <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is really important to have a bigger data set. And the problem with this kind of research is that um, these randomized control trials um, are very expensive and they take a long time. And so, yes, having more people within the data sets and having a larger sample pool will be really important in, you know, really seeing more promise in this type of technology for predictive and personalized medical care. And also just being able to have these big data sets that source from different medical conditions, like apart from schizophrenia, will be helpful because, I mean, this type of technology would be helpful in cancer treatment and different, different really high-stakes treatment options. Yeah, I would love to see that outside of um, schizophrenia patients. Also because we know so little about prognosis for schizophrenia, and we do know that's very individual <laughs> for everybody. So I'm not sure about how efficient we can be in building AI prediction models for a disease that we just don't know that well just yet. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. No, the generalizability is, is very poor right now. And I would say also just as someone who's working in health policy or at least aiming to work in health policy, it's really interesting hearing about these data sets because we often have discussions about how the current data sets that we have are very much imbued with, you know, the structural you know, disparities that we have in our um, health system. So like the people who are getting treatment and who are there, thereby contributing to the data sets are often, you know, very disparate in terms of, you know, racial groups and socioeconomic groups. And so that's the problem with modeling these types of um, machine learning technologies off of data sets that we currently have is that we just don't, we don't know if they accurately reflect the patient's in the entire population. And they probably don't. Exactly. Uh, yeah. This is a very interesting perspective on things. Thank yeah. you for that. So Mara, what's the next study about? Well, the next study really, really caught my attention because it's talking about how RNA can function outside of the cells. Awesome. So what is the established role of RNA? Well, RNA in the cell serves as a temporary storage of information. For example, a cell needs to make um, a protein for any reason, structural, signal, anything. The information to make it is recorded in DNA. But in order to make it to the machinery that actually makes all the building possible, DNA exists uh, inside the cell, in the nucleus, in a very organized fashion. It's not going to go anywhere. So RNA gets coded from the DNA, contains the same information, and then travels to a different part of the cell in order to make the process complete. And so what did the researchers observe? Well, they found that RNA, this has been established previous to this research, right? That sometimes we can actually find RNA on the surface of the cells as opposed to inside the cells where it would be only a natural place for them to perform their function, right? And specifically for this research, they focused on type of RNAs that are called glycoRNAs. So glycoRNAs differ a little bit um, in that they have a different structure. They also have glyco part of it, which is a sugar attached to RNA in some way. And those are, I won't say frequently, but sometimes found on the surface of cells. 
And in terms of cell type, they focus on neutrophils. Neutrophils are a type of immune cells that are present throughout the body, and they serve a role of first responders to any kind of trouble or something that could be trouble that could trigger immune response, and they usually trigger inflammation to occur. How did they investigate this discovery? Well, first of all, when they found out those black RNAs and surface neutrophils didn't know what they do, they did what any biochemist would do. They knocked them out <laughs> and observed what would happen. So neutrophils without glycoronase on the surface, they had impacted function in several ways. First of all, it was limited how much they would get recruited to the site of potential infection. It also reduced the amount that they would adhere to other cells, to endothelial cells that are usually surface-related. Um, so they reduced the amount that would adhere to them and how they would travel through. And all of those are essential parts of inflammatory response in which neutrophil plays a role. Now, they also looked into which components are participating in this adhesion process, and they determined that RNA allows neutrophils to bind to certain structures on the side of endothelial cells. And it's really interesting because we do know that RNAs have different structures that they can use in different ways. I only talked about translation of information, but they have some other functions inside the cells that we keep discovering still. And it's really interesting to me that they also have this whole completely new function um, that has to do with binding in this sense. Yeah, so what are some prospects of this discovery? Well, in terms of how much it impacts the immunological component of response, um, probably an immunologist could talk better about it. I just think that globally, having RNAs found somewhere else, and again, as I said, discovering a new role, is just fascinating, and it's probably just the beginning. It opens a lot of prospects, and we are yet to see how it will be used practically to enhance perhaps research or maybe even some implications to human health. Yeah, no, it's so interesting hearing about this because I feel like every time we hear about these new, very like fundamental um, roles being expanded, I just keep on thinking back to what I learn in basic science classes or like AP Bio um, in high school and elementary school and how we are watching these things evolve um, in real time and seeing that, you know, the things that we once knew are maybe not antiquated but need to be expanded and it's just it's kind of a privilege to you know be in the scientific community and be able to see um how things are going to change in the future and and watch as the scientific curriculum changes too no i totally agree with that it's one of the exciting parts of being in the university community yep exactly okay well moving on to our last study what do you got so, our final study is going to be looking at the importance of medication-based treatments for opioid use disorder. So, basically, according to the CDC, 75% of drug overdose deaths in 2021 involved an opioid, and that was a 14% increase from 2020. So, in a new Yale-led Yale study, it was found that opioid use disorder treatment administered with medications was associated with a decreased risk of relapse or fatal poisoning compared to non-medication forms of treatment. And the findings even suggested that administering treatment that did not involve medications produces worse outcomes than if the patients were receiving no treatment at all. 
Okay, before we move forward, can you talk a little bit what does non-medicated opioid use disorder treatment involve in comparison to medicated treatment? Yeah, absolutely. So with medicated treatments, oftentimes there are these two drugs that are involved, so buprenorphine or methadone. And to start off, buprenorphine is basically the gold standard of treatment for opioid use disorder, and it is used additionally for treatment of things like acute and chronic pain. On the other hand, methadone has similar effects as both morphine and heroin, meaning it has to, at least initially during treatment, uh, be taken under medical supervision. But it has a longer half-life than those other two drugs, um, morphine and heroin, resulting in less intense withdrawal symptoms and can actually effectively block certain euphoric effects of other opioids. On the other hand, as far as non-medicated treatments, there are two that I'd like to discuss, which would be cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's used for a number of psychological disorders such as depression or anxiety. But essentially what the therapy does as it is it is used to motivate patients to change their behavior and increase compliance to treatments. Um, and then another non-medicated treatment would be contingency management, which is essentially using positive reinforcement models, rewarding patients who can prove via testing, for example, that they are not taking drugs. I see. So how exactly did they conduct the study and what did they find? So these findings were observed via a retrospective cohort study of data on opioid overdose deaths in 2017 and whether the patients studied were exposed to medicated treatment in the six months before they passed and with that data being compared to deaths involving no treatment at all. And the study found that with no exposure as the referent, exposure to medications like methadone or buprenorphine reduced the relative risk of death by about 38 or 34% respectively. The relative risk of death with non-medication treatments was the same or worse than not receiving treatment at all. That is so surprising to me. Um, I guess I understand now because first when I saw the article and the news article stated that non-medicated treatment is sometimes worse for outcomes than Medicaid treatment, or with no, no treatment at all. But then if you put in context of increased risk of death, yeah, that would kind of make sense in some regard. Yeah, and I was doing a little bit more research on the non-medicated treatments, and I think that it's definitely something that we need to explore, especially with drugs such as methadone being involved and just the effects that they can have and how similar they are to morphine and heroin. But I think that a lot of research can be done um, to increase understanding of contingency management because one of the studies that I looked at um, as a reference did say that it's not used as much um, and however it can be highly effective in you know use for treating you know different disorders so I I would love to see how our um, just body of knowledge can expand for non-medicated treatments but I believe them when they say you need medication, or at least it's highly effective in helping with OUD. Yeah, as much as I have faith in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, there are some things it can solve on its own, I'm sure. Yeah, especially when you're basing it off of, like, you know, motivating patients to 
you know, want to no longer rely on drugs. It's like if you're if you're not a willing recipient of therapy, I think that relying on someone's willingness is extremely difficult. And like motivating them. Yes, but I assume patients involved here are more or less motivated because they're all in the study. I mean, I would hope so, but then there are, you know, questions about generalizability and like, okay, if you have an unwilling patient and you're using these types of treatments on them, you know, how can we be realistic about the effectiveness? I do hope they control for that in their data. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we will wrap up on that note. Uh, thank you guys for being with us today, and we will return next week with another set of stories. And happy to be here today. So happy to be here. I missed you so much. Bye.